Welcome to One More Time. I'm the executive producer of the podcast, and I'm usually one of the hosts, but I'm going to be turning this episode over to our producers, Zia and Mary Allison. We have a very special and timely offering for you today called The Glass Ceiling. This episode is focused on women in the band world. When we planned this episode back in September, we had no clue how pertinent the topic would be when it was to be released. I will be honest, I was hesitant to be on this episode at all. It was only going to be female voices, and as soon as I sign off, that's what it will be. But after talking with several women in the profession, I decided it was important to have a male voice. Men need to be advocates and allies in promoting diversity. We can't sit by on the sides and decide that we don't have a voice in the issue because our chromosomes are different. We need to speak up. The excuse that being afraid of saying the wrong thing is not an excuse. It's complacency. Women are underrepresented, and we should be promoting the greatest amount of inclusion. My mind immediately goes to the female band directors and music teachers I have had and how important they have been to my growth. I certainly will not be the musician, educator, or conductor I am today without their guidance. Mrs. Johnson started me on trumpet in the fifth grade at Ellsworth Elementary in Naperville. My first trumpet teacher was Bonnie Brown, and she got me through middle school and high school band and into a college program. Then there was Laura Joss at Baldwin-Wallace University who gave me countless conducting and teaching opportunities. I spent a few summers with Dr. Mallory Thompson at the Northwestern Conducting Symposium, and I cherish how those weeks pushed me to become more than what I was when I started. And each day, I have the opportunity to work with Dr. Beth Peterson. She was never really my teacher per se, but I have learned more from my interactions with her than I am currently even aware of. Right now, take a few seconds and think of all the female band directors and music teachers you have had in your life and how they've influenced you and made you better than you were before you met them. What would your life be like without them? Mine would be less without those I've mentioned, and I'm sure you feel the same way about those in your life. No matter who you are, now is the time to advocate for equality and diversity in this profession. We can't fall behind on this. If anything, now is the time for us to be leaders. And with those thoughts, I turn over the rest of the episode to Zia and Mary Allison, who have produced a terrific episode. Thank you, Sean. Uh, hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of One More Time, a wind band podcast. My name is Zia Fox, and I will be your host. Usually, I do uh, behind-the-scenes work for One More Time as an editor, but I'm making my on-air debut for this episode. I am currently a senior in music technology here at the University of Illinois. I played trumpet in the Marching Illini for four years, serving this past year as a section leader. Joining me today is Mary Allison Mahachek. Hello, listeners. I'm currently a junior here at the University of Illinois studying English and communication. I'm actually a member of the Alliance dance team here on campus, but I'm an avid lover and admirer of music myself. Today, we will be talking about women and their role in bands. So, what bands have you been in, Mary Allison? Um, well... I actually haven't been in band since I was in about sixth grade, but I did have a band director in fifth grade. Well, I don't remember her name. Um, <laughs> she was she was very encouraging, but she did get mad at me sometimes because I played clarinet and my pinky fingers were too small to fit the bottom holes. Oh, no. So I could not play the low notes. And we would be in our like sectional time practicing in the morning and she'd be like, come on, Mary Allison. And I would be like, I can't do it. <laughs> Needless to say, she did not recommend me to play the clarinet the next year. Oh, no. <laughs> I've played trumpet pretty much uh, my whole band career. Like, I switched every once in a while, but didn't start on trumpet. But my first, one of my first band directors in middle school was a woman, and we'll be hearing about her later, uh, Barb Dickey. And uh, then in high school, I had a female band director, and she, she recently left my high school, but now another female band director took over, and it's, I've always had women in yeah. roles in music, and then now we're both in the marching line, so... Woo-woo. Yeah. 
We'll start our show off as we always do with our segment called From the Archives, but we will not be hearing from director of the Sousa Archives, Scott Schwartz, for once. <laughs> Instead, we will be hearing from Carol Berthold, who has been volunteering at the Archives since January of 2016. She is a retired public speaking professor who has always had a very particular interest in music and volunteering. Carol will be telling us a story about women in the Sousa band. Today's topic, and this is in, in uh, recognition of the uh, Women's History Month, uh, is the women in white. And the women in white were the women who performed as vocalists, violinists, and one harpist uh, in John Philip Sousa's band. It's surprising, I guess, if you consider that the band performed between 1892 and 1931, that there were 180-some women soloists. One of them was a harpist, as I've mentioned, but the others, they did not play any of the brass instruments. They were violin and vocal. There were four factors that Susie used in hiring women. First of all was undisputed artistry, and I think you'll see in a minute just how true that was. And the second through the fourth criteria were beauty and grace and personality. And these were kind of marketing tools because he would try to attract people to come and listen. I think his thought was if there were beautiful women who were also good performers, that he was likely to get more men pay their nickel or dime to come to see and hear the band. It's interesting that there was a paternal relationship between Sousa and his women soloists. We would find this kind of off-putting today. But this is how it worked in those times. First of all, he insisted that the free time that the women had be spent with him. And this was to avoid any rumors of impropriety between the band members and the women soloists. He didn't want any kind of a scandal or any kind of a bad mark against the band. Interestingly, he didn't do this for the men in the band, but he paid for the women's lodging and their food. And he paid them well, too. And then he preferred that the women soloists wear white or a light-colored gown in order to contrast with the fairly dark and kind of military-style uniforms for the band. So I'd like to highlight a few of the, the women who, who were on the band and who were really notable in their own right. Virginia Root was a lyric soprano. She performed with the band between 1909 and 1917. Uh, she introduced many of his songs, and so she was really one of his favorites for that. And she was really much loved by band members because of her charm and her outgoing personality. Another soloist with the band was Winifred Bambrick. She was the Canadian harpist who performed with the band from 1920 to 1930. And she performed solo on several tours. Uh, she became one of America's finest harpists and later toured with other artists and presented recitals and was a soloist with symphony orchestras. Marjorie Moody was another soprano who performed with the band from 1916 to 1931. She sang, uh, it's estimated, sang about 2,500 solos, which is a lot of singing. 
and she was noted for her clarity, range, and power, and got outstanding reviews. Evidence of her uh, popularity was the fact that at least one concert she sang as many as five encores. Estelle Liebling was a lyric soprano uh, with the band from 1902 to 1905. She took nine tours with Sousa and did many off-tour off concerts. Uh, Liebling was the only uh, woman, at least, who received an honorary doctorate from the Curtis Institute of Music. That is the only woman from uh, the Sousa band. And then finally, I'd like to highlight Maud Powell, who was a violinist with the band from 1903 to 1905. And later she was recognized as one of the world's greatest violinists. Uh, she had an extensive repertoire which was recorded. Her recordings were reissued as recently as 1988. It's really an undisputed fact that the undisputed artistry criteria which Sousa had for hiring women was certainly in evidence in these examples. Today is about diversity, specifically highlighting women. So we asked the question, what can we do? We'll be answering that question now and a little bit later, but first, Mary Allison, do you have a favorite band piece? Well, no, since I don't, I haven't really played in the band since I was in sixth grade. Fair. But um, I did really enjoy the pieces that we played in our Pirates of the Caribbean set um, this past year in the Marching Illini. I heard them so many times, so how could they not be my favorite? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. How about you? Oh, well, that was definitely fun to play, but uh, my favorite piece is Sweet from Mass by Leonard Bernstein. You know, I played it in uh, high school. And I played euphonium on it. Like like I said, I didn't always play trumpet all the time. But there's just this one part has like mixed meter. So it's like it's like three, four plus three, eight. It's crazy. It's definitely worth listening to. Um, Sounds wild. Yeah. So listeners at home, think about your favorite band piece. All right. So now that you're thinking about that one really cool part, is that composer of that piece a man or a woman? Research done on the Midwest Clinic programs found that from 2008 to 2017, out of 1,355 pieces performed at the Midwest Clinic, only 36 pieces were composed by women. If you do the math, that's 2.6%. Statistics for composers of color are similar. What could the Midwest Clinic do to fix this? Well, they could have inclusion requirements. Midfest and Janfest at the University of Georgia require that at least one piece must be by an underrepresented composer. And at the CBDNA North Central Regional Conference this year, each ensemble had to perform one piece by a female composer. Many took this to heart and performed several. An article titled Time's Up suggests that a conscious effort in programming will naturally help to promote diversity. To present a more diverse concert series, try this programming proposal. 25 to 35% of repertoire from living composers, 15 to 25% from women composers, and 15 to 25% from composers of color. This leaves room in your concert series for whatever other composers or pieces you like, while still incorporating underrepresented composers and promoting diversity. If you want help finding more women composers to include in your concerts, check out the Women Composers of Wind Band Music Database. It's a free online collection of names of over 800 pieces for wind band at all difficulty levels, written by women. 
and it's continuously being updated. The link to this database can be found in the description of our podcast. The same people who created this database are working on a composers of color of wind band music database, so keep an eye out for that as well. In addition, composer Jody Blackshaw put together a database of music in grade one through four composed by females, which is a great way for school music programs to discover repertoire that is playable at their level. Moving on to our next segment, Lieutenant Kelly Cartwright will be briefly sharing one of her favorite band techniques in two-minute techniques. Hi, I'm uh, Lieutenant Kelly Cartwright. I'm the Fleet Bandmaster of the Pacific Fleet Band at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, and I'm just going to talk for a minute about rehearsal technique. Rehearsal, first of all, is a collaboration, not a dictatorship. It might sound strange coming from somebody in the military, but collaboration, no matter how young or old your ensemble members are, invests players in the product. And the way that uh, I go about the collaborative process is probably different with professional-level musicians, but the concept of individual, individual investment is at the heart regardless of their level. Now, of course, it wouldn't be the military if we didn't have a process and an acronym. Uh, so what they teach at the uh, Navy School of Music is something called DICMO. It's detect, isolate, correct, and move on. And it's pretty self-explanatory. Detect, you hear an, an issue that needs to be addressed. Um, isolate. Isolate the section or group. This is not to embarrass them, but rather to empower them to hear what you are hearing. Uh, many young conductors are afraid to uh, afraid of this important step, and it's okay to admit you're not sure what you're hearing and why that's why you need to isolate. Correct. Take measures to address the issue. Slow down to the fastest speed where something can be played absolutely correctly. Otherwise, mistakes are only reinforced. While we apply this to individual practice, it's equally applicable in the ensemble practice. And finally, move on. You don't dull too long on any one issue. Balance being demanding of your ensemble with pacing. What can you address without stopping? Things that you can show without stopping the ensemble. For instance, the uh, length of the eighth notes and the second movement of Holst's first suite. That's something you can show through gesture far more effectively than in explaining. When I was thinking of sources for this episode, the first person that came to my mind was my former middle school band director, Barbara Diggy. She inspired generations of band students that passed through the Illini Middle School in my hometown of Jerseyville, Illinois. I remember one time in class that I wasn't playing my trumpet loud enough, so she pulled up a stool next to me with her trumpet in hand, and she said, play louder than me. And it worked. I I was able to play louder than her. So I asked her to share one of her favorite stories with me. Now that I'm retired, I feel pretty lucky that I was a band director. At the time when I decided to be a a band director, I was really discouraged to do it. I I didn't even know at that time that I was getting into something that I wasn't going to find a job in. So between the two schools, I went to Western Illinois, and then I went to U of I. First place I went to student teach, and the male band director told me, I'm going to tell you point blank, women aren't band directors, and you can get me coffee or run off copies for me. And then my um, supervisor from Western came, and I could hear them screaming and yelling in a room, and then she says, you're out of here. And then I went to a, a smaller town in the Chicago area. It was funny, it was called a small town then, but now it's a suburb of Geneva. And that, that man was very fair. He needed the help. So he said, oh, you can do band, you can give lessons. So I had a pretty good training with him. Charles Leonard, he was a music educator that I really admired, and he got me a job in Puerto Rico. 
um, they were having an exchange between the teachers of Puerto Rico coming to get their master's degree, and then we were sending some of our teachers over to fill their spots. It was a, a middle school, not a middle school, but a junior high, intermediate they called it. I got a, a job by San Juan. Probably was one of the best band classes I ever had because all the kids had to audition to get an instrument. We had about 35 instruments, so 35 kids auditioned, got the instruments. And first they were going to leave the instruments at school and they all got stolen, <laughs> like the first two weeks I was there. So then they got another 35 instruments. The kids were supposed to bring them home and they had to protect them at their houses. I thought, well, with this experience, when I get back to the States, you know, maybe I could get a job because everybody said you have to have experience, you know, to get a, a good band job. So I, you know, stayed there for a year. And I have to say they were the best kids I ever had. Every time you would leave to go home, you would hear practicing going through the town. So then I came back to the States and I applied everywhere and I couldn't get a job, you know, a job. There was rejection letters, not telling you why. They just said, you are not what we need. The letters were very kind of cold when they came back, and some people didn't even bother to give you a rejection letter. So it was getting towards August 1976, and I said, oh, my gosh, I'm not going to get a job, so I better go into some other area. And then I was called to Brussels, needed somebody, and Tony Seymour, the superintendent, he didn't see that the job should be just for men. I worked there 16 years, and then in Jerseyville, Don Snyder's was superintendent, and he had the same idea. He didn't see it as a man or a woman's job. That's when I retired at Jerseyville. So it takes special people and men to believe that at the time that women can do this, you know, do the job, that it's not just a man's field. For this episode's main segment, we'd like to share a collection of interviews that I conducted. I reached out to a few women band directors from across the states, Dr. Courtney Snyder and Dr. Andrea Brown from the University of Michigan, Dr. Emily Trinan from the University of Minnesota, and Dr. Paula Kreider from the University of Texas, Austin. What was your early band life like? Starting instrument, first band, etc. Dr. Courtney Snyder. I joined the Color Guard of our marching band um, when I was in, I think I was a sophomore in high school, and then I realized that all my friends were actually in the band. <laughs> I, I just really wanted to be more around them. So I figured let's learn another instrument. So I actually started playing flute. Dr. Andrea Brown. Well, I'm from a very small town in the middle of West Tennessee. Um, I played horn. We really enjoyed a very strong marching band tradition. And then in the spring of a strong parade band tradition. Um, and so I definitely grew up very much in love with marching band pageantry. Dr. Emily Trinan. Well, the first time that I was exposed to band was in fifth grade. So I walked into this room and the first instrument that I felt really attracted to was the saxophone. And so the teacher at the time said, well, you know, a lot of students are interested in this. Would you consider the clarinet? I thought, well, this seems interesting. And it was a little lighter than the saxophone, so I could carry it around. And that's really how it started. Dr. Paula Kreider. Okay, first band didn't start playing until uh, I was in high school. Uh, my junior year, I was playing basketball, and our great basketball coach, coach quit to become a principal, and a new basketball coach had no interest in coaching girls, so uh, I found myself in the band hall and he put a trumpet in my hand and, you know, <laughs> that was it as far as I was concerned. What inspired you to become a band director? 
When I was in grad school, again, I was thinking I was going to be a high school choir director. And then when I started taking conducting, that was really like, this is totally what I'm supposed to do. I did all instrumental conducting. I didn't do any choral conducting. And I realized band was really where I needed to be. My band director, band directors were, you know, some of my favorite teachers. Later in high school, maybe uh, helping out with horn students younger than me, I began to figure out that I liked teaching. I had accepted my calling that conducting and teaching in an ensemble setting was was really the best fit for me. I felt like the you know the art of conducting was appealing, but really what drove me was the idea of teaching and sharing my passion and sharing what I thought was really interesting about the music with a group of people that we could all kind of come together and explore this. So that's really where it started, um, and then the journey kind of went on and on and on. In a, in a fabulous way, but in, in unexpected ways that I'm very grateful for. We did not have a very good high school band, and I'd always wanted to, to be able to build a band that kids could be proud of. And secondarily, it was, music has always been, I mean, you know, it never stops being challenging, so that really appealed to me. Did you ever face adversity in the profession due to your gender? I certainly received comments when I got hired for my first job that the only reason I got hired was because I was a woman. I mean, I heard occasionally some things, not from any of my main teachers, but about certain things, how I should conduct on the podium or especially related to, to being a marching band director. If I was with my assistant who was a man, they would immediately start talking to the man and assume he was the head director. And fortunately, both of those people were very respectful of me and saying, I'm not the head director, it's her. And that wasn't just a generational thing. There were older men as well as younger men. I didn't ever have that issue with women in particular. And I can't say as to why it was just the people that I dealt with were all men in that instance. Sure. You know, the thousand tiny cuts that happen on a daily basis. You know, things that are said, things that are assumed, things that are said to you or about you, doubts uh, that you can do this or that because, again, those assumptions because of your gender. The direct adversity, shall I say, or the direct conversations that I've had with people were actually pretty few. Of course, I remember the first one was by a female faculty member, and I had said, ideally, I'd like to be a high school band director. And this person said, well, I, I don't think that's going to happen, certainly not for a while. And then I said, well, is that just because I will be young? Um, and this person said, no, it's not just that, but you're going to find that there are very few women that get jobs in the high school setting right away. Now, indirectly, you never know why you don't get something. And one can just assume, well, maybe that's because I'm a woman, or maybe it's your age, or maybe it's your lack of experience. So I tried very hard throughout my career to never assume that it was because of my gender. <laughs> oh yeah, but I've never been a whiner about it. When I wanted to become a band director, I was told, well, you know, you should be a general music teacher. Women just aren't high school band directors. And when I started teaching, there was, here in Texas, there was quite a bit of resentment because there were no women in high school bands. And lots of guys thought they should have probably gotten the job that I was fortunate enough to get. It was really no big thing to me because I was too busy trying to figure out how to be a better teacher. Was there a point at which you felt more accepted? I mean, I've always felt accepted by the people around me who knew me. I would always draw to those people that knew me and kind of use their support. I had a history in terms of like 
my job interviews. I'd always do really well in job interviews and I've gotten a few acceptances even on the spot. That certainly helped me feel accepted in the fact that clearly I had something that people thought was worth actually even hiring me for. The biggest thing that always made me feel accepted was the fact that I knew I had really strong musicians around me. I felt grounded in knowing that there were strong people around me that supported me. I don't think that I can say yes. Like, I mean, truly, like I think that there's things that I know now about myself and know that I can do, and it's sad in a way. I wouldn't say that there's uh, anything has necessarily changed where I don't feel like I have to uh, work twice as hard, prove myself twice as much in any, you know, any kind of situation that involves any kind of comparison. Anyone that has a quote-unquote successful career, however you do want to define that, a person cannot do that alone, period. And I am um, eternally grateful to all of my mentors. You know, my first mentor was my middle school band director, but she was the first person along my journey that got me to just work really hard. Then my high school director, I just, I feel like I owe a lot of my own growth to him. And then in college, most of my teachers were incredibly supportive. And then my master's is from Northwestern and I worked with Mallory Thompson there and she was terrific in every way and very tough. And and then my Cathcock and my doctorate um, at Michigan, same thing. I feel very lucky that I've had that uh, pretty much every step of the way. Yeah, I, I think when we started having, uh, you know, state and national success with my high school bands and the kids earned, uh, you know, recognition for their efforts, then... Uh, I think people finally decided that I might know what I was talking about. It took a little while, but uh, yeah, you know, you just, uh, there's that old adage that uh, if you're a minority, you have to be better to be considered equal. And I think, I think that was very true in my situation. In regards to gender equality in the field of band, where do you feel we are now? In the statistics, especially for college directors, as, as women, is not even really 10%. We, we certainly do have more women in this job than ever have been. And I'm encouraged to see that even at top university programs, we have some prominent women in those positions. I, I wouldn't say remotely that we've arrived. We certainly aren't even. I don't know if we ever will be. That doesn't mean that I feel hopeless about it. I certainly think there are more women who want to do it and more women who are interested. And now that they see some women in these positions, they realize it's possible. You know, this is a subject that's really uh, dear to me. I've done some work uh, with Music for All on this subject. Me Too Midwest this past December at Midwest and trying to continue conversations with people that were involved in that. As many of these obstacles as possible that have just been assumed and propelled in this kind of male-dominated field that we begin the process of dismantling them. So every person of every gender, every ethnicity has a real opportunity to be able to share their music and connect as a conductor and as a musician, as a band director in this profession for as long as, as they want to. Times have changed. And now it's a matter of what I have to ask myself is, well, gee, am I being looked at because I'm a woman? Am I getting this job opportunity? Because whatever organization has to fulfill gender inequity, I want to win a job because I am the right fit and I'm qualified. And if it so happens to be that I'm also a woman, well, that's great too. But I would hate to have someone else not win a job that's equally as deserving just because they are not a minority. 
That's a really good question, and I, I, I think we've come a long, long way. And, you know, maybe on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being where we should be, we're maybe at about a 5 right now. But uh, every year there are more competent uh, females or more competent minorities who are given a chance to prove themselves, and, and of course they do. What's the next step in promoting equality, and what is something that your male counterparts could do to help? I think especially in terms of trying to, to promote equality, we have to think about what we see as like the skills that are necessary for this kind of job in students who are really young. Um, there are still statistics that show that a lot of conductors, especially band directors, come out of certain instruments that are typically more male-dominated. Is there a way to, to bridge that? You know, why is it that we're only looking that those are the instruments that tend to do this? That's partially the directors looking at their groups and encouraging those that they see have the strength and ability to be able to do it. Look at what their musical potentials are. Look at the things that that catch their interest. It's not just men that are interested in this higher level repertoire. I definitely always try to seek out students, both male and female, but I'm always looking at what some of my female students are to really help encourage them and show them what's possible. So we need to make sure that we're always thinking about this regards to the music and how can this person bring out the best music and not limit them based on what their gender is. I think we also need to make sure that we're not perpetuating the mindset that women can't be leaders, um, that women are either too emotional to lead or incapable of leading, don't have the skills. As far as our, our male counterparts, to have them involved in the conversation, accepting that maybe they have made mistakes in the past, or maybe, you know, they haven't always said the best thing. Maybe they haven't always kept an open mind and just letting their mind become more open and more aware of how they can truly be allies for women in the field. Obviously, people of color right there along with us. Men hold so much of the power in our profession. It's going to be absolutely necessary for us to have really good conversations and all of us kind of growing together in our awareness of how to move forward in a way that is inclusive of everyone in the profession, whether that's male, female, LGBTQ, people of color. How do we allow our profession to represent all of those voices? The question that comes up or the comment that comes up is, we need to see more women in leadership positions to inspire the younger women to continue on these kinds of tracks. I used to think that every student should see a woman in a, in a leadership role, regardless. But now I, I feel like I understand that in a different way. And I think it's actually because I'm a mom of a daughter. I do think that there is merit, and I understand the importance now of young girls seeing role models, whether that be a trumpet player or a percussionist or a flute player or a conductor. I do think those young girls need to see that as a role model. We are more balanced than we ever have been in history, and I do think people need to be more present as role models. I hope that younger girls, I hope they feel that they have access to seeing role models, you know, people that look like them, quote unquote, so they don't feel discouraged in, in trying to pave a path for themselves. Well, again, I, I think the, the next step is just to have more competent females, more competent minorities uh, be given a chance to prove themselves, because the more that uh, we can prove ourselves in the profession, the more gender equality we're going to be afforded. Most of my male counterparts have been very, very supportive. So it's just, you know, finding the right people and educating them. I think sometimes we don't spend enough time talking about the things that matter to us as as females.
And now for an Illinois update. On April 7th, the Wind Symphony will be presenting a concert that features the music of Paul Dooley as a part of graduate student Jason Gardner's doctoral project. They will also play music by Morton Gold, Donald Grantham, and John Mackey. The Wind Symphony will also be going on tour to New York City in April. They will be performing the second of three gathering concerts, celebrating the sesquicentennial of the University of Illinois. On April 12th, they will perform at North Hills High School in Pennsylvania. And on April 14th, they will take the stage of Alice Tully Hall in Manhattan. Both concerts are at 7.30 p.m. Now that we've identified a problem with diversity and wind bands and thought of ways we could fix the problem, let's take a look at some of the progress that's already been made. The League of American Orchestras is a shining example of progress. In June 2016, the League of American Orchestras created a diversity forum that meets in conjunction with the League's National Conference. The diversity forum includes five national task forces. One, build an audition support system. Two, establish a mentor network. Three, strengthen music education pathways. Four, support increased board and staff diversity. And five, promote organizational readiness. The audition and mentor groups have merged and are finalizing their plans for a new program that is expected to launch in spring 2018. The third annual diversity forum will meet during the league's national conference in Chicago, June 13th through 15th, 2018. You can read more about these task forces and what the League of American Orchestras is doing to promote diversity at americanorchestras.org slash diversity resources. Our source material segment comes from composer Alex Shapiro. In this source material segment, we will hear Alex talk about one of her best-selling wind band pieces, Papercut. Papercut came to be out because of utter frustration and uh, utter writer's block, in a sense. It was, it began uh, from a wonderful, wonderful commission from the amazing BandQuest, the American Composers Forum BandQuest program. And they give free reign to the composer. The composer can write anything they want to. And I was really exploring electroacoustic ideas with large symphonic ensembles. I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world to play with because I'd always been doing electroacoustics with soloists or duets. And I thought, wow, what would it sound like with you know 90 people on stage? <laughs> and so, well, fast forward to once, the, once it became a piece that also included the students playing paper in all kinds of ways throughout the entire piece, in addition to their instruments, I sheepishly went back to American Composers Forum, the nice Banquist people, and I said, oh, and by the way, they're playing paper. <laughs> I said, I, I'm going to apologize in advance. It's, it's probably going to sell like three copies or something. And they said, no, it's great. Just do whatever you want to do. We value a composer being authentic to the... The reason the paper entered into it, it was about three in the morning, and the deadline for delivery of this piece was fast approaching, and I really hadn't come up with a compelling idea. I knew my instrumentation, and I knew it was going to be electroacoustic, but beyond that, I kept coming up with bad idea after bad idea after bad idea. <laughs> Just, you know, this is what you go through. Sometimes you, you get it on the first bounce, and this one, I had done about 16 bounces of different themes, and it was awful. So in, I was getting very cranky at three in the morning and, and looking at my calendar thinking, I don't have that much time to pull this together at this point, because it just was one of those pieces that wasn't coming to me. And so I, in my utter frustration, I'm sitting there probably in my pajamas, and I, I take the, the 17th bad idea I have put, put down on paper, and I crumple it up, and like a petulant child, I toss it on the ground, I just throw it on the ground next to me. And I live in a really, really quiet place, so you can hear a lot. 
And in that silence of the night at 3 a.m., I heard the sound of the paper hitting the floor. And I don't know what made me turn my head and reach down and pick up the paper. And I took it into my hands and I started playing with it. I started touching it lightly and really listening to those frequencies. And then I started kind of ripping it a little bit, slower, faster. Ooh, different rhythms, look what I can do. I started unfurling it and snapping it. You, you see where this is going. Well, I don't know why, but at 3.05 in the morning, I had this brainstorm of, well, if it sounds this cool with just me doing it, what would it sound like with 40 or 50 middle school kids doing it all together? So I took out my iPhone and I started recording and I started creating an audio catalog to play with to see what these sounds would sound like in the context of a musical piece. I recorded maybe 10, 15 different sounds that I could come up with and then I downloaded them and dumped them into my computer so I could trigger them on my controller because I'm writing everything in Digital Performer. So I dumped the paper sounds in for writing the piece. You want to write around the frequencies. You want to make sure that the paper will be heard most of the time. And so I started playing with the samples of different things in different places. Then I started to think visually. This was my first multimedia visual piece. As it turns out, I just backed into it because I started thinking in terms of what's it going to look like when they raise the paper over their heads? How about call and response? How about assigning different paper to different sections of the band? Then it got really complicated because I had to choreograph this piece. It became a big thing. But I was probably up till, you know, eight in the morning with the first round of this. I got some sleep and then I hit it again. First thing, you know, I just was so excited about putting this together. But that's how the paper got in there through frustration. And I always say to students when I'm talking to them in, an, in a Sky Purcell, I want to encourage them to say, no matter how frustrated you are, stick with it because it, you try, you try, you try, and it's not really failing, it's just waiting for the success. The piece basically it starts very atmospherically. I was thinking along the lines of film music and, cin and cinematic music because I was also thinking what's relevant to younger students? What, what's their sound world? It's video games, it's movies. I start texturally as though as though like it's a film and then because it became so visual so quickly I start them off with the crumpled ball in their laps and very gradually they're instructed through a text box in the score. It's all simple notation to slowly raise the crumpled ball of paper while tapping on it and it ends up sounding kind of like rain and as they're raising it it becomes a natural crescendo and that's the opening of the piece and from there the music picks up tempo a little bit it's a straight quarter equals 96 the whole way through it's almost four, a straight 4-4 four, four with two 6-4 exceptions the whole way through. I tried to keep it very simple and also because I knew the conductor has to wear a click in their ear, a click track, I wanted to make it easy for them too so that they weren't struggling trying to keep the, the, the uh, musicians and the track together. So, the, and the first half of the piece, really, it's a five minute piece and I'd say the first two and a half minutes are only the track and paper, paper playing. All the different kinds of call and response or rhythms or groove little riffs that they can do uh, with paper. At one point, right before they actually have to pick up their instruments, I have them all at the same time dive down to the floor. And the reason I did that is not because when they rub the paper on the floor, it sounds that great to the audience. It's interesting, it's a nice, you know, kind of sound. But 
this came about because when I was rehearsing the piece with the middle schoolers in Friday Harbor, Washington, I had made a comment asking those kids to come up with different paper sounds and different ideas to add to the piece if they wanted to. Well, this one kid standing next to me just went down to the ground and started rubbing his piece of paper on the, on the floor, on the carpet in the band room. And I just made a casual comment from the podium saying, wow, that's really cool. Next thing you know, because it's middle school, all the kids hear me compliment him and they all dive down to the ground. The result is I'm standing on the podium. The entire band has disappeared. <laughs> the visual was amazing. It's like everybody. Even no heads. I thought this was absolutely hilarious. And I said, I said to myself, I gotta use that. I'm, I told them, I'm putting that in. And I actually went back to the studio and put in four extra measures to accommodate not only the sound, but the getting back up, letting the blood flow back down from your head <laughs> and pick up your tuba and play. You know, it's like I have you have to think always physically about a piece when you ask demands of players. Now for our rehearsal peak, we will feature Dr. Beth Peterson conducting Frank Tickelli's Sleep. on iTunes to make sure you don't miss anything if you enjoyed today's show. If you want to stay current with Illinois bands between episodes, follow us on Facebook or join us on Instagram at Illinois underscore bands. Find us on Twitter at Illinois bands. And of course, watch us on Snapchat at Illinois underscore bands. You can always check out our website for more information, www.bands.illinois.edu. The executive producer of One More Time is Sean Smith. The staff of the podcast includes producer, editor, and host of today's show, Zia Fox, co-host and script supervisor, Mary Allison Mahachek, producer Stephen Cohn, Christian Arkin, and Daniel Dresser, and editor Sam Litt. Of course, none of this would be possible without the Illinois Bands faculty. Stephen Peterson, director of bands, Linda Morehouse, senior associate director of bands, Beth Peterson, associate director of bands, and Barry Hauser, associate director of bands and director of athletic bands. Illinois Bands is a part of the School of Music at the University of Illinois and the College of Fine and Applied Arts. We hope you will join us next time on One, One More, More Time. Time.